You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Well, yet again with you, but not with you in the same room. Here I am, once again in Richmond, and uh, you're calling it in. Um, Yeah, well, you you had said originally that we were going to do remote recording, and so, you know, I I cracked open a drink. Oh, good for you. You know. (laughs) Well, I, I got home, and about five minutes after I got home, I got a text message from uh, from my bookkeeper in Richmond saying, come and sign all of the things tonight because it's the end of the month, and tomorrow's Friday, and the first is Monday, and everything's got to be paid tomorrow. So, okay. Yeah. Right. So here I am. I might as well record it from the studio. From the studio. Live. It's driving law. Hey, remember before the pandemic, we were going to do a live episode. We were going to invite people out. We were going to book a bar, and we were going to record live in front of a, an audience. Well, we were also considering a pancake breakfast to discuss uh, driving law issues yeah, and all sorts, of, law. all sorts of other things that included having yeah. people together. I've <laughs> noticed that, uh, that people together is, um, is actually happening, and I've heard rumors that Crown Council are going to be uh, expected to be back in their offices soon. Um, people who are vaccinated are are not really getting sick and transmitting it. And the nightmare that everybody expected at the universities and schools has not turned out to be a nightmare. Yeah, so Keith Baldry, like Keith Baldry was was accurate in his uh, assessment of the government's assessment of, you know what I mean. Well, you know um, that I have complete faith in anything that Keith Baldry says. If he says it, <laughs> it must be true. Keith Baldry could tweet that the moon landing is fake, and I would be like, "Well, if Keith says it." I just wonder if Keith if Keith knew about the lump on John Horgan's neck before John Horgan did. Uh, excuse oh, me, Mr. Premier, Mr. Premier. <laughs> I want to get sure that checked that out. John Horgan probably phoned him because <clears throat> Keith's such a nice guy, and he went, "Keith, I just wanted to give you a heads up. This is just between us." Okay. Yeah. He he might have he might actually that that's entirely possible. I, I believe that happened. <laughs> I am so I'm, my fingers are crossed that they've got this thing early and that it's not uh, okay. not cancer. Anyway, uh, he, you know he's been a good premier overall. There's always things that you can complain about, and there's always people who will be upset. And I'm I'm not. Uh, there's things I'm upset about, like this FOI thing. Um, sure. But the um, you know for the most part, I would say he's been a pretty good premier. So. Also, can we just talk for a moment, because this is actually worth talking about. Former podcast guest and minister in charge of ICDC and minister of public safety and solicitor general, meaning the guy in charge of the BC Motor Vehicle Act, has also now been appointed deputy premier and is expected to basically do John Horgan's job. Didn't we have a deputy premier before? Did we have somebody? Or was yeah. There- I thought I there was somebody who was a deputy premier. I thought I assumed there's always a deputy premier. I heard this too that that uh, that this has happened and it makes sense to me. Mike Farnworth, yeah. nice Mike, guy. Mike Farnworth is like the most experienced MLA there is. No, and he's also a like a good manager and he's he knows what he's doing and he knows he understands all the files. <laughs> yeah. He he, yeah. he, he can do, he can be the government. Fifty percent of the government's work right now. <laughs> 
don't hear much about, we don't hear much from David Eby these days. Yeah. He has well, a podcast, but he's uh, otherwise seems to be out of the picture, out of the spotlight. He's got housing and he's the like attorney general. Well, you'd think the housing thing he could be criticized for that because it ain't getting any better. Yeah, but it's you know, here's the thing about housing and I realize this is not driving a lot, but the thing about housing that bothers me is like the the density will solve our problems camp. Density will not solve the problem. Tearing down single family homes and building condos in their place only creates little like safety deposit boxes in the sky. Yes, shoebox safety deposit boxes in the sky. Oh, the computer's yeah. doing a weird thing here. I hope it's recording. Well, we'll lagging, find out. It, it usually works. It just lags on the on the image of the audio. Well, you're the one usually staring at the screen when we're here. Yeah. It's mesmerizing. <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to look at it. Yes. All right. Uh, let's moving on let's from. Move on. <clears throat> I mean, we could talk about this this condo for cars being built in Toronto. Maybe that's a topic for another another week. Oh, Driving I know law. nothing about this. Tell me about the condo for cars. <clears throat> no, I've only read the headline, and I can pretty much figure out what it probably is. It's a, a big garage where people can store their multiple cars, probably. But in any event. Okay. Well. If it was in Vancouver, okay. they would dig down like 20 stories. Naturally. I had a colleague who was in a, had a condo, a new condo downtown Vancouver, and I went to his his house for some reason. We were just parking, actually, in his parkade, and then we were going to go somewhere. And we drove into this parkade, and we drove, and we drove, and we drove, and two-thirds of his commute was driving in the parkade. It went oh. so deep. Shocking. Okay. okay. Well, now, we're done with that topic. Let's yes. move on to something that's substantive on driving law with Kyla Lee. Let's move on to something substantive. And the substantive <laughs> thing that I want to move on to is the mystery of Richmond Court. So, as you know, traffic court is not in every courthouse. Or, or is it now? It is in every courthouse, except Chilliwack. Um, but traffic court, for a number of matters, was being heard in Richmond. And for, for the time before the pandemic, traffic court in Richmond was two sessions that ran at the same time. So you'd have courtroom 107 and courtroom 103. Or 108. 108. And they would run at the same time. So you'd have people, or sorry, 103 and 108. There we go. It doesn't really matter what numbers they are. So you'd have a session with, you know, 12 disputants in one courtroom and a session with 12 disputants in a courtroom, and things would be, you know, moved through the system as quickly as they could be. After the pandemic, um, well, during the pandemic, when they brought things back, they moved all the Richmond matters to Kitsilano Secondary School, and they were running the four sessions at a time and multiple matters, but they were also dealing with all of the Vancouver matters at the same time out there. Um, so there was like double the volume. And then after they moved back into the courthouse, they only ran one courtroom for traffic matters. They didn't ever open up the second courtroom. Well, it's pretty tight in the courthouse, though. That's the problem, yeah, right? It's tight down that hallway. So that, I think, was the issue. But you could you <clears throat> make it so that it was safe, you could put, you know, and, and also there were days that I went there and courtroom, the courtroom was the 108 courtroom, not the 103 courtroom. So they were using both courtrooms, even in the pandemic. So they appeared to have the room is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, so let's get but to the mystery, though. This is, this is a long mystery. This is a big buildup for a mystery. You said a mystery, and I'm like, yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat, and I'm going to fall off my seat. So on October 14th, with like... That's the anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. Wow. Well, that just adds a layer to this. Now we're into full conspiracy talk. Okay. <laughs> the, the BC Provincial Court posted an announcement. Effective January 4th, 2022, all disputed violation tickets issued by Delta Police and disputed violation tickets that would normally be set for hearing in Richmond issued by BC Highway Patrol, Fraser Coast Ursu, or the Intersection Safety Camera Unit will temporarily be set for hearing in New West. Interesting. So weird. And New West isn't running any additional courtrooms for traffic court. It's still just their one courtroom 417. Well, they're probably going to use another courtroom, another courtroom there. Not a traffic courtroom, but a different courtroom. No, it says right here. Located at 651 Carnarvon Street, New Westminster, B.C. in courtroom 417. Huh. So they're moving all the intersection tickets, a bunch of Ursu tickets, and all the Delta Police tickets to New Westminster, which would leave only Richmond RCMP and the lower mainland Ursu tickets issued in Richmond to be dealt with in Richmond Court. And you and I both know that Richmond RCMP is not issuing that many traffic tickets. Well, you know, back in the old days, uh, there was a courthouse in Ladner. Mm-hmm. And then they moved all the tickets from Ladner to uh, to Richmond. And that was mm-hmm. quite a heavy load, I thought, for Richmond. Then for a long time, we had all of the Surrey. I mean, that included the Surrey Courthouse tickets. Um, they weren't going to Surrey. Uh, they didn't have a traffic court in Surrey. Now they have a traffic court in Surrey. But, I mean, everything was coming to Richmond, which has always been a fairly small courthouse. So, you know, they it seems to make sense to do it in New Westminster. New Westminster does have the room, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Do I think it must... always a lot narrower. No, I mean, if they put it in a different location. If they put it in a different location. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Anyway, I don't know why. I'm very curious. Is this going to be a permanent change? Is it an issue with a shortage of judicial justices? They are hiring judicial justices right now. When, when is, is this? When does this happen? Effective January 4th, 2022. Oh, that's the anniversary of the uh, ice storm in um, in eastern Canada. Like 1998, 1999. Battle of Hastings, then the anniversary of the ice storm. You're on to something, Paul. Oh, my goodness. I think <laughs> we're, through, we're through the looking glass. <laughs> anyway, if anyone has any insight, please share, because I am very curious as to why this would happen. Well, for us, uh, leaving from the Richmond office, it's a quick drive, at least to New Westminster, straight down the east-west connector. That's true. But boy, has traffic ever gotten horrible in the last two weeks, last yeah. month. Just yeah, shockingly, shockingly heavy traffic now. I'm so glad we're moving out of downtown because getting to downtown is tough and getting around downtown is near impossible. It's like gridlock all the time. All right, moving on. Next thing we need to talk about is a really interesting case out of Campbell River um, involving uh, some some law from Alberta. So you and I have been keeping mum 
uh, about a pretty big issue because we've not wanted to let the cat out of the bag to all our prosecutor and police friends who listen to the podcast. Cat's out of the bag, though, now. Cat's out of the bag now. Somebody else argued it, so now the cat is out. The cat is the cat is meowing, and uh, my my secret advantage in impaired driving cases is going to go away. But well, that's as, fine. as you know, I've always had a system where I had one really strong argument that I would tell the crown. I would have one maybe red herring that I wouldn't necessarily run, but that might seem plausibly good, and I might run it if it worked. And then I would always have the hold back argument that I would never let them know. And this has been our hold back argument. We just haven't had to use it. No, we haven't had to use it. Or at the time that I've revealed my hand and been like, oh, by the way, did you read this case? It's been too late for them to fix it. Um, So backtracking to December 18th, 2018, a simpler time, uh, (laughs) when changes to the criminal code came into force. In fact, one of the changes that was made was repealing um, the presumptions that existed under the earlier version of the code, including the presumption of identity which was that if the samples were taken within two hours after the person uh, drove, that it was presumed that their blood alcohol level was the same as the level at the time of driving. And they just eliminated that by creating the presumption that you're you're creating the offense as being impaired or over uh, 80 within two hours after ceasing to operate the motor vehicle. For the presumption of accuracy, however, they actually expanded the things to some extent, that the prosecutor had to prove in the case. They had to file all sorts of evidence to show um, that there were blank tests, that there were calibration checks, that there were all these things that were done to ensure the accuracy of the sample. And that information was required to be set out on a certificate of qualified technician, or it was required to be provided by viva voce evidence from the technician. And one of the things that's required under the criminal code is a document called a certificate of analyst. Paul, explain what the analyst certificate relates to. Oh, okay. I was just um, thinking I was just so distracted because I think that's Steven Spielberg's birthday, isn't it? December 18th. Okay. Um, The certificate of the analyst. Okay. So breath testing is quasi-scientific. There is a... There is a (laughs) the magical belief that your, your breath and your blood are going to reflect the same way or that your breath will be consistent with what's in your blood. Um, and they test you on an instrument. <clears throat> they call it an instrument instead of a machine because that sounds a lot better. And they claim that it's a scientific instrument, but it's not really a scientific instrument. It's a, it's a machine that's designed to generate evidence that looks compelling uh, to be used in court. And the more compelling it looks, the more likely it's not going to be questioned. It's a battery duct to a tube. Basically. Um, So uh, the device we use now, the Intox ECIR2, has a standard in it. So it tests itself against a standard, like you would with a scientific test. Um, And it's a standard that's been tested by a lab. uh, And the standard is a a compressed gas that, that the instrument is supposed to have a reading on before the subject blows. And that is before each time the subject blows to ensure that it is still within its parameters for calibration. Now, the standard gas comes from a manufacturer, comes into Canada. They pull some bottles out of that gas to test it, to test the standard. And the person who tests it is an analyst. And the analyst conducts a test of that gas and says, okay, this gas fits within what we expect. 
uh, this gas to be, and it can be used in these instruments. And they produce a certificate. And the, meth the reason for this certificate is to bypass the requirement of the analyst to come to court. So yeah, it is a shortcut in evidence. Uh, and so analysts get a bottle of this gas, and we assume that they test it. Who knows? Because they never come to court. We don't get to cross-examine them on it. Uh, but they claim that they do, and they produce a certificate. I cross-examined one once. Well, I know it's not, you know, it does happen, but it hasn't happened since 2018, has it? Or from a file since 2018? No, not. not it yet. has not. Um, so that is uh, a certificate of an analyst. Okay, go ahead. So the criminal code requires that the certificate of analyst be disclosed to the accused, along with reasonable notice that the prosecution intends to produce it at trial. And I, the idea there being that it's an evidentiary shortcut, and at least you got to know that it's happening. Well, also, the idea there being that there are certain mm -hmm. obligations on defense counsel. If they want to cross-examine the analyst, they must bring an application on 30 days' notice to the Crown, 30 days in advance of the trial, which makes 60 days, supported by written argument, so time then to prepare and file a written argument, you're looking at about 75 days total, prior to the trial date, that application has to be heard to determine whether or not you get to cross-examine the analyst on the information in their certificate. So the reasonable notice requirement is also to put the defense on notice that we're going to file the certificate, and if you intend to cross-examine this analyst, you'd better bring your application. Otherwise, this evidence is going to go in. Now, the criminal code is not clear about whether or not the certificate of analyst actually needs to be filed at court or whether simply disclosing it is sufficient and then it can be referred to in the Certificate of Qualified Technician. That is a certificate produced by the officer who pushes the on button to operate the instrument. And I say pushes the on button because literally all they do is data entry and then press the on button. And this was litigated first in Alberta where they seem to have the most impaired driving cases and argue them the soonest, um, ideally, I think, because they sit uh, their court until 10 o'clock p.m. They just run out the clock on these cases. You'll stay until the middle of the night to finish your trial. So every trial is a day. <laughs> My three-day trials, theirs are one day because you don't stop. You don't take breaks. There's no lunch break. There's no health break. You just keep going. Um, so Alberta, a bunch of very smart lawyers that we know, Tim Foster, former guest on this podcast, his partner, Catherine Bayek, um, and uh, at the time, uh, their associate, who's now got the Alberta Crown, uh, argued that this certificate had to be filed in court, that it wasn't enough for it to just be referred to in the Certificate of Qualified Technician that the alcohol standard was certified by an analyst to meet the code requirements. And the Alberta, um, uh, the Alberta Provincial Court and the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench were both like, mm, nah, it's enough. You can have the hearsay evidence, and you can say um, that it was certified by an analyst, and it's in a certificate, which itself is proof of the truth of the contents of the certificate, so therefore it's proof of the truth of the contents of another certificate referred to in the certificate, even though that's hearsay, it's an exception. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> this was the state of the law, that I the Crown didn't have to file this document, but they appealed to the Alberta Court of Appeal, who reversed the judgment and found that, no, in fact, you do have to file the certificate of analyst. It must be adduced into evidence. It's not enough to just have the hearsay in the certificate. The document needs to be filed in court and put before the judge. Which so makes this is perfect sense of, to me. makes perfect sense to me, too. If everything is hinging on these documents, if this is how the Crown gets their presumption, their evidentiary shortcut against having to prove that the results were actually reliable, then they need to do, like, the most to get to that level. You don't just get the benefit of evidentiary shortcuts when you have a beyond a reasonable doubt system unless you comply with all four corners of the legislation. And it's but, not that difficult, frankly, but in any event. Honestly, not that hard to file the document. But the uh, uh, Court um, of Appeal decision in Goldson in Alberta was never applied up until earlier this month in B.C. In Campbell River. In Campbell River. And this is actually a very interesting case. So this is the case of, of Regina McDonald. Mr. McDonald was pulled over, investigated by a police officer, uh, given a roadside test. He fails. He's chartered warrant, taken back to the detachment, provides two samples, then a third sample, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, and he's charged with impaired and over 80. Trial proceeds, and partway through the trial, the Crown says, you know what, I'm going to invite an acquittal on the impaired. There's obviously no symptoms. So it's only the charge for being over the legal limit. And at the beginning of the trial, the Crown realized that their certificate of analyst had the wrong lot number. It wasn't for the actual alcohol standard that was used in his case, which should have been a winner <laughs> right then. <laughs> this is one of your. This is when the Crown should just arguments. be folding the, yeah, folding yeah. the tent. That's the type of thing that I would hold back, yes. Yeah, that's the thing. You, you pull the crown aside like five five minutes before the trial starts and go, okay, one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just tell you the thing that's how you're going to lose. Yeah. I know I've told you the other things that are problems for you. Now I'm going to tell you how you're going to lose. Yeah. So the crown applies to uh, just fix it, to file the correct certificate. And the judge is like, mm, no. Not a chance. You need to give notice. The morning of trial is not noticed. Uh, then Crown's like, okay, well, we'd like to adjourn the trial then um, so that we can get the correct documents. And the judge is like, uh, no, this dude's like built his entire case around this. That's obviously prejudicial. Plus, Jordan, much? Well, like, also, this is the trial. You screwed up. Your Crown counsel, you didn't get it together. You didn't get it together on a technical aspect, something that you should have known has been in the criminal code since 2018. <laughs> like fucking like this is a, an individual charged facing serious charges and having to come to court and you've botched your case substantially substantively and substantially and now you're coming to court to ask for the court to give you an adjournment so you can do the, your job better case. I really want to get a conviction <laughs> it's like not the role of the crown yeah um, anyway so the Crown's like, okay, we'll proceed without the certificate, obviously unaware of the Goldson decision. But it gets worse, Paul, as you know. There were three samples 
So what else was the Crown missing in this case? Well, they probably didn't have a certificate, um, a certificate of, of qualified technician showing what the breath readings were. When there's three samples, typically um, there's been a problem. There should be two samples. If there's three samples, I always think I win uh, because there's always been something wrong with it when they've taken three. But the reason that they've typically taken three is because they know that there was a mistake with at least one of them. Of course, you don't know if there's a mistake with two of them or all three of them as a result, if it's just some weird anomalous reading or uh, it's a, an error that the police officer has made that you can see. But in any event, there's no certificate. So somehow they still have to get the readings in. So they call the breath technician to the stand to testify. And the breath technician's like, oh, yes. And there was uh, an alcohol standard that was certified by an analyst. I know this because I saw a thing on the wall that said it was. So uh, there, that's the evidence. And that was what the Crown intended to rely on. Wow. Yeah, I <laughs> know. But this is, this is what had happened in Goldson, right? Like, this was the way that it was done for the first two and a half years of, of you know, Bill C-46 being enforced in effect. So this is the first case at least the first reported one that I could find, um, to consider whether Goldson applies in B.C. Because the judge says in the decision, look, like, this is the Alberta Court of Appeal. It is not binding on me. I'm in B.C. But it makes perfect sense. <laughs> and that's what they said. Yeah. But it makes perfect sense. And also, it's pretty darn persuasive to have a, an appellate court consider this. And the appellate court also went through all of this competing case law about whether this needs to be provided and resolved all of it. So, like, you can't really get around the legal analysis that was done there. So there you go. Now it's the law in B.C., or at least it's the provincial court law in B.C., which means one provincial court is probably going to follow it. Although we have seen in the past, as we did when the retrospective uh, application of certain laws in B.C., that the uh, there was schisms in the court and one courthouse was going one way and one courthouse was going another way. Mm -hmm. But this is an issue with respect to uh, uh, evidentiary shortcuts. So it seems to me likely that they will follow this decision from Campbell River. Yep. Speaking of retrospective applications, <clears throat> we have a leave application pending before the Supreme Court of Canada right now on retrospectivity. Yes, I know that. And uh, I'm still optimistic about it. Because I, I think it's different than the other one, and I, I think, think it's, it's different. Yeah, and I think you know, like the crown's argument against it is basically, well, it shouldn't get leave because these cases aren't really in the pipe anymore, so it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have national importance. But I don't, I don't think that's not enough because all of the people, like if they were convicted, and the repeal of the presumption uh, was retrospective, then all of those people would have an avenue to seek an extension of the time to appeal their convictions and then appeal their convictions, but actually could have a significant national importance. There could also be other people <clears throat> who are waiting on it, um, it you know, but there could also be cases that were forced ahead because of Jordan that were wanting to wait on it, and the Jordan decision came in the interim uh, yeah. and uh, compelled the court to run these things that should have been held in abeyance uh, pending a decision on it going to the highest level of court in the land. Yeah, well, we saw this with 
Summers when the uh, Supreme Court of Canada sort of revisited how the calculation of pre-trial um, custody credit was supposed to happen. Um, the court looked at it, and um, all of these these appellate decisions were released, just correcting the sentence um, to account for the time factors that Summers decided. And there you go. So there, you you've just made the case for. A, I hope you wrote that in the. I hope you wrote that in your leave application. Otherwise, it's going to be another cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada, but didn't. But you know that I don't feature my own cases on that. That's true. Otherwise, you uh, have to have two episodes a week. Now, I thought that we could also talk about because it is hit and run season, and we've you know we've been kind of glib about it about it being you know the most wonderful time of the year. Um, well, it's and, always a joke for us because it's yeah. it, it's just yeah. such a strange thing. Look, people it, hit particularly in BC and cows and parked cars that are unoccupied, and it's there's insurance, and it's really a victimless crime at that point. Um, it's also not a crime to hit a tree or a cow, but <laughs> you know the used to be the, cows. <laughs> used to be apparently the they got rid of that, and that was one of my favorite things to talk about. But there's a darker side to hit and run. As you and I both know, which is that there are cases where hit and runs occur, where somebody is killed uh, or seriously injured. And uh, the BC Provincial Court um, released a sentencing decision in one of those very tragic cases recently that I thought we should talk about. Okay. So this is the case of Gilpreet Sandhu. Uh, Mr. Sandhu was uh, charged and, and convicted, well, he pled guilty to, um, uh, dangerous driving causing death, failing to stop and provide particulars and offer assistance, knowing that somebody had been killed, plus dangerous driving causing bodily harm and failing to stop and offer particulars and assistance, knowing that people had been injured. So he pled guilty to four separate charges. Um, the guy was 18 at the time the incident happened. He offered to drive a bunch of people from a party bus to another party, um, and uh, there were six occupants in the vehicle, only five seat belts. He was speeding, struck a barrier in the road, and the vehicle um, rolled. The speed at the point of impact was between 109 to 120 kilometers an hour. Um, but just before the collision, the vehicle speed, according to the um, the dash. Uh, the, the black box in the vehicle was 153 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Well, you're going to have an accident at that speed and you're going to hurt somebody or kill somebody. So, yep. And yeah. he's driving a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Okay. All right. So, so this is. He pleads guilty. He pleads guilty. Um, he apparently gave a, a statement to the police at some point. Um, and he's sentenced. I'm sorry, what was his age? 18 at the time of the accident. Mm. Oh, my goodness. And the accident was February 2021, so he was uh, 18 at the time of sentencing, basically. Eight, yeah. No, 18 at the time of sentencing? No, 18 at the time of the accident. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, sorry, 8, 8 of February was when he entered the plea. He was 18 in 2019. Yeah. So, so like he's, 20. He's 20 years old or something, yeah. 2021, and he's going to jail. Going to jail. All yep. for something he did when he was 18, real bad. And then, 
caused horrible, horrible, horrible consequences. Yeah, like this stuff to me, I, I, I have a real intellectual problem with sending people to jail for driving offenses. Well, I again, I think that there may be some general deterrent effect. Specific deterrence, I think, is always achieved by the horror of the consequence. Not always. I mean, there's a, occasionally somebody is a real asshole, uh, mm-hmm. but for the most part, I think it's it's achieved just by you know the the, the the specific deterrence is achieved, and general deterrence is the only reason for this, and and the simple threat of jail rather than the duration of the jail uh, is the thing okay. that actually deters. Here's the thing. I don't think so because when you're young and you're dumb and you've got a bunch of your friends and you're, you know, riding high because you were on a party bus and life is cool and great and you feel invincible and you drive super fast, the idea that you might go to jail for going 153 kilometers an hour and killing somebody is not crossing your mind in that moment. It's not deterring anybody. I'm not, you know, I'm not out driving on the road thinking, well, I'd better not go 153 kilometers an hour down Kingsway because I might go to jail if I do that. That's not what's deterring me. Mm, When I was 18, I might have been deterred by that. But also, how does, like, when you get a situation like this, right, like, as you and I were discussing before the podcast, hit and run, you can expect to go to jail. Like, that is the expectation, because they want people to remain at the scene of the accident. They want to send a message to people who don't, that whole general deterrence concept. But if you kill somebody and you're driving dangerously, then you're already going to go to jail. Like True, so it doesn't change that. It doesn't so, change that. I mean, the jail sentence is longer, but people aren't sitting there calculating that. Well, okay, I just had an accident. I killed somebody. Well, I'm going to jail because I was driving like an asshole, so maybe I should just leave, and maybe it'll be harder for them to prove, and maybe I can get a better deal down the road. I mean, nobody's going (laughs) through that calculation, but... um, But also, like, the the jail sentence here doesn't even make, like, the right amount of sense, in in my mind, Um, because on the dangerous driving, like, this jail sentence does not, to me accord with what you're saying is the rationale behind sending people to jail for impar- or for dangerous driving or driving offenses. So the dangerous driving causing death, there's an 18-month jail sentence. The, the, um, uh, the jail sentence on the dangerous driving causing bodily harm was 15 months jail, which doesn't make any sense because you have the same driving, the same conduct, but a different consequence. So you're sentencing him not for the behavior, but, but for the results. Outcome. Yeah. Which to me is a legal error. Well, uh, there's a Supreme Court judge who was overturned on that. Um, she was agreeing with you. It was a few years back. In any event, go ahead. And then counts two and four, the leaving the scene. There were concurrent sentences, and this is the trend, right? When you have a uh, leaving the scene and another charge, that the typically the um, leaving the scene sentences are concurrent, not or um, sorry, um, they are consecutive. Um, but there's concurrent three months jail. So leaving the scene where somebody dies, 
and leaving the scene where somebody's injured. Same jail sentence, which doesn't explain why you would get 18 months for the dangerous causing death and 15 for the dangerous causing bodily harm. So there's the, the different consequences the and the same result. Yeah. And then in one, it's, it's different consequences. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. And, and different also, result. If, if the leaving the scene is truly the worst conduct, because that's the thing, you know, you're, you're escaping criminal or civil liability. You're making it more difficult for the police. You're making it more difficult for the families. You know, people want closure, all of that. Why is the jail sentence, like, way less? Why is it three months jail for that, but 18 months jail for the dangerous? Like, it seems to me that it should be the other way around. Well, I can understand that. You don't necessarily... Uh, I, I, that makes some sense to me. I mean, it, the jail for leaving the scene, especially in a case where the person has provided a statement and is pleading guilty, uh, the jail is um, is really a, like a tokenism jail, almost. I mean, it's it's just for the point of being able to say, I'm sentencing you to jail. You understand that you leave the scene of an accident. Jail is a, is the result. So that, I mean, I think that's the rationale. But who knows? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. The, judges the go judge to conferences, and maybe they discuss things, things at conferences. We know this has happened in the past. Like the judgment doesn't get into it. It talks about why jail would be necessary, the rules of sentencing, rehabilitation, sentencing ranges, et cetera, et cetera. It takes into account the mitigating and aggravating factors, but it doesn't actually explain why the the numbers were broken down the way that they were. Uh, I, I think it's an attempt to craft sentences that are specific for each specific count. And I don't, uh, it's the trend. This is the way it's gone in the last decade. Uh, I don't think that's an unusual pattern. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it used to be, used to be more of a, uh, you'd get more of a global sentence, I think. Now it's, it's sort of going piece by piece by piece. And maybe the reason is for, greater certainty in, in being able to craft sentences that are similar to other sentences. Uh, this has been a criticism of the court across the country, right? Our courts have been, have been challenged for this many times. They want to have the discretion. Um, there's a, everybody, but, everybody but the conservatives want the court to have more discretion. And the court may be trying to demonstrate that they are entitled to that discretion or should have that discretion by uh, passing sentences that are very specific for certain things. I mean, I, I that's been my guess for why this is happening for the last decade and more so uh, in the last five or six years. And I could be completely wrong, but that is the sense that I get. And that's always unfortunate. So when you're trying to um, uh, hang on to something by, I mean, being maybe harsher, right? That has been the tendency in the last few years that I've sort of felt, especially with uh, impaired causing death and dangerous causing death, that the courts, rather than um, permitting themselves to be subject to criticism that could then lead to greater uh, restrictions on their uh, range of sentences that they could offer, have um, sort of bowed to the political pressure in the hopes that, or bowed to the public pressure in the hopes that they could, uh, there wouldn't be political pressure leading them to lose their discretion in sentencing. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? I hear what you're saying. And that was a long statement, but that's just the sense I get. Okay. All right. You could be right. You could be wrong. Sometimes, you could uh, be waiting for the best moments of the podcast. I am. Let's hear it. It's the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. All right, what do we have? What do we have? I didn't send you one this week. This one, this one made me laugh. So I'm going to start with a story. When I was a teenager and I got my first car, I decided to get a bumper sticker. And then I got another bumper sticker and another bumper sticker. And all of a sudden, I had a car that was covered in bumper stickers. The oh. entire back of the car was just bumper sticker city. It was awesome. Awesome. Um, Probably ugly. I only had one bumper sticker. What was your first bumper sticker? Oh, um, I don't even remember. Hmm. Yeah, mine was Boogie Till You Puke. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, <laughs> this guy in uh, Ontario, Milton, Ontario, had a bumper sticker on his car that said, Too Loud, Too Bad. And he got pulled over by the police for driving with no safety certificate, bald tires, and no muffler. No muffler. No muffler. Too loud, too bad. Well, I guess they would probably give him a ticket in those circumstances with no muffler. Oh, oh they, they seized his license plate and charged him because he has apparently violated these laws numerous times. And is not fixing the defects on his car. Well, there you go. I just found the tweet. The, uh, too loud, too bad. HRPS Milt H. Hills, the Milton District Response Unit, stopped this car with a temporary validation that expired months ago. No safety certificate. Tires bald. No muffler. Drivers received numerous tickets this year. Uh, and uh, there it is. There's a sticker on his back window. Too loud, too bad. Uh, yeah. Oh, those tires. There's nothing. There's no tread on those. I drove with cars with no tread on the tires, too. <laughs> but I always had a muffler, at least. <laughs> at least you had a muffler. Uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, it's hilarious. Anyway, so that's our Ridiculous Driver, and that's our podcast. Thanks, Kyla. Nice to talk to you. Have a good evening. And I, I probably will see you tomorrow. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, and if you have an issue you want to talk about on the Driving Law Podcast, you can send us a tweet, a direct message, an email. You can reach out to us on our website at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 